Okay, just whilst we're swapping over, um, I'll introduce you to James. Um, he's come from the University of Copenhagen, uh, working as a master's student. Uh, he's happy about to, to submit his thesis sure. um, at the Centre of Objectivity. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, do you want a week to submit? So, um, great timing for this. It is. It's, 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 yeah, I can really put the flame under me. Uh, and allow me the floor. All right, thanks. Um, so thank you so much for being here, and uh, it's a big honor to come uh, over from Copenhagen to give this presentation. Um, so the title of the talk is The World from the Inactive Approach, Degrees of Transcendentalism. Um, so how many people are familiar with the inactive approach or inactivism? So around half of you, okay. So for those of you that aren't, hopefully uh, the, the framework I will give will help help you understand what it is, and, and those of you who are familiar with uh, it, hopefully you can, um, it'll sort of uh, structure your thoughts about it with regards to certain questions about the world. Um, so all inactivists share the view that cognition is not skull-bound, um, so they're against this representationist, re representationalist idea that cognition happens in the head. Um, instead, they think that it's body and world involving in a number of complex and cyclical ways. Um, but what kind of world is cognition supposed to be involved in? Um, so this is a broadly metaphysical question, but the, it doesn't come with the presumptions that there should be uh, uh, the possibility of positive or systematic metaphysics. So um, if anybody is anti-metaphysical, don't get squeamish. Um, so it's commonly debated in the literature uh, all sorts of issues about embodied <coughs> cognition, anti-representationalism, sensory motor contingency, social cognition, um, and activism is known for these, these sort of qualities um, and they are quite controversial, um, but the most radical theme really is neglected. Uh, so in The Embodied Mind, that which, which was written in 1991, this is really where they coined the term inactivism and the, the, the concept of inaction. Um, you find an explicit anti-objectivism about the world. So they say that world and mind can't be understood in isolation from each other. Um, so from my research, I've been able to put together that there's a, a wide level of disagreement on the topic, but it's really not brought up that often. So you kind of have to dig deep and find little jabs that they're giving at one another, or go back to the original sources, which, which I'll do today. So um, if, if an activism were just a scientific theory, I think it would make sense that they're not talking about the concept of the world. But uh, as Gallagher points out, um, Sean Gallagher is one of the big inactivists, that uh, inactivism is more a philosophy of nature than a scientific theory or a research agenda. So I think it could at least uh, be enlightened by a more direct conversation on the topic, and that's why I'm here today. So um, in way of an outline, first I'm going to define some terms, then I'm going to pro uh, propose this uh, interpretive heuristic category, these four categories, about how to understand an activism vis-a-vis uh, world uh, independence from the mind. Then I'm going to contextualize the motivations for anti-objectivism and an activism, actually in terms of realist intuitions. Um, and then I'll conclude with some very cursory thoughts about phenomenology and science. So real quickly, ob uh, objectivism is the metaphysical, metaphysical position that the real world is the totality of nature, um, the existence and structure of which are completely independent of cognition, mind, any manifestation of subjectivity. So it should be pretty familiar to us. Anti-objectivism, on the other hand, is, uh, of course, rejects this. Um, and it's held by a lot of um, phenomenologists, for our sake. So Husserl, Gerwitz, Sartre, Meloponti, Hans Jonas, and uh, it's just important to point out that um, anti-objectivism doesn't entail idealism, uh, if you understand idealism to mean that the world is of a mental kind or that there's a, a priority of mind in the world, mind-world relationship. 
Um, transcendentalism, uh, a quote from Thompson, Evan Thompson here, it's investigation concerned with the modes or ways in which objects are experienced and known and with the a priori conditions for the possibility of such experience and knowledge. So um, it asks how phenomena or appearances are constituted and experienced, and it tries to find some sort of basis for understanding. Correlationism, um, is, uh, as Maximilian Beck described it in 1928, as the following, neither does a world exist in itself independently of consciousness, nor does only consciousness uh, or a conscious subject exist in the world merely as a mode of consciousness for the subject. Consciousness and world, subject and object, I and world stand in a correlative, i.e. a mutually dependent context of being. So keep that mutually dependent context of being in your mind. And just as a note, uh, Maya Su popularized this term with after infinitude, but he didn't come up with it, and I don't associate negative terms to uh, negative connotations to the, the term correlationism. So here's my proposal here. I, I, I want to suggest four categories of inactivism according, according to their metaphysically relevant claims of the mind dependence or independence of the world. Um, so it's heuristic and interpretive, which means these are possible interpretations you can take. Um, sometimes one text can afford different interpretations, so uh, one, uh, often use one author to straddle multiple categories. And I think that this shows that there's a bit of uh, lack of clarity. Um, so here they are, uh, the correlationists and activists, they say that minds and worlds are enacted together. There's no more real world outside the relationship between organism and world. Both correlates are not merely together, but interwoven. And so uh, Evan Thompson follows Merleau-Ponty and identifies this relationship as one of chiasm. Um, so the interpretivist and activists, as I, as I call them, um, they think that what's enacted is a selection or an interpretation from an objective world to create a phenomenal world, or what we might call an umwelt, a world for the organism. So umwelt in mind, these are necessarily correlated and interwoven, but the objective world, that's, that's something that exists independently. Um, sorry about it, it's been... Uh, so in the objectivists, yeah, I think, the objectivists, they assume uh, reductive naturalism about experience. So. Mind is epiphenomenal, uh, it's an apparent byproduct of physical systems, and um, so in this frame of mind, the embodiment and the sensory motor activity that are pointed out by um, some phenomenologists in activism actually offers objective naturalistic determinations of phenomenal experience, so it's quite different in a way. Um, and the bracketed kind, uh, they, uh, many, of course, researchers don't talk about metaphysics, so this is basically uh, metaphysics. Uh, metaphysically miscellaneous pile. So the main texts uh, in the original branch of inactivism are these three here, Tree of Knowledge, The Embodied Mind, and Minded Life. And I've pasted the authors over here. Uh, so this is, uh, this is Umberto Matarana, Francisco Varela, uh, Eleanor Roche, and Evan Thompson, who's really the, uh, the, 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 the one that's carrying the torch for the original branch of inactivism today. Um, but it's really diversified a lot. So I won't go through all of these, but it, they're inspired from a wide range of sources. So it's a really, it's quite a synergistic research field. Of course, phenomenology, but also dynamic systems theory, mainstream cognitive science, Madhyamaka, Buddhism, um, evolutionary developmental biology, and analytic philosophy, in particular Putnam, Davidson, and Rorty. Um, so let's look back at this idea uh, of representationalism that they reject. Um, what they said that it basically leads to a harmful dialectic where on the one hand, um, you have uh, a, a very strong form of realism saying, what's inside the head are just these truth conditional 
some things, but what's really real is outside, outside this world of experience. Um, it's this sort of oddly colorless house. By the way, this is a, a real image on a, a pro-representationalist philosopher's website. Um, it's this sort of colored, colorless world outside of experience. But on the other hand, since we live inside of this inner world, we're sort of projecting outwards. Um, and so Francisco Varela said that in the first case, representation is used to recover what's outer. In the second case, it's used to project what's inner. So he thought it led to either uh, eliminativism or some sort of idealism. So his solution was to, to pose a middle path between the scylla of cognition as the recovery of a pre-given outer world, realism, and the charybdis of, a, of, a, of cognition as the projection of a pre-given inner world, which would be idealism in his terms. And so he says on the concept of an action that this shift requires that we move away from the idea of the world as independent and extrinsic to the idea of the world as inseparable from these, uh, these processes of self-modification. So he's talking about the mind, uh, the organisms modifying itself through time. So this would suggest, of course, that these original inactivists were correlationists. Um, and yet, in the embodied mind, they write, uh, they have a couple of examples. One of them has to do with this Vittorio model, which is a, a model of a dynamic system which they, they take to stand in for a cognitive system. And basically what they write is it, inform, it performs an interpretation in the sense that it selects or brings forth a domain of significance out of the background of its random milieu. And so this, this uh, you don't have to understand the mathematics behind the, the dynamic system right now, but the, the pay close attention to the language that they're using here. Um, also in Tree of Knowledge in 1987, they have this uh, infamous submarine analogy where they say, Imagine a submarine operator with no windows. They, they, they drive the submarine according to inner, internal sensors and knobs, lights flashing that they bring to equilibrium with no knowledge of the outer world. Um, and then they write, quite shockingly, actually, this is, what, this is valid, what's valid for the submarine in this analogy is valid for all living systems for each one of us human beings, um, which I think is actually quite a problematic thing to say, and I think that they would have recanted it later. But um, um, So th th this would suggest that on my account that these would be interpretivist statements. You have a pre-existing objective background and then experience the mind sort of selects out of it. Um, I think this is a perfectly ro robust interpretation of an activism. I think that uh, a lot of an activists think this way um, and I think it's more palatable if you have naturalist or objectivist intuitions. Um, and I, So I think Tree of Knowledge was more interpretivistic than correlationist in my language. Um, also, uh, Sean Gallagher and Alvin Noe both lean towards interpretivism. So Gallagher says, the world, meaning intentionality. So he, 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 he parenthesizes it there to say, not the world in itself, but the world of meaning intentionality is not pre-given and predefined, but it's structured by cognition. Alvin Noe is also, I would say, broadly interpretivistic, um, but I'm going to skip that for now. But I think that the embodied mind and mind and life Actually, if you go in and look at the, a lot of the quotes, I think they actually intend a form of correlationism, so quite a radical anti-objectivism. And, so, and Evan Thompson has actually confirmed this when I've talked to him, um, but he said they weren't clear about what kind of co-determination between mind and world or between organism and environment they were talking about. And so he, he, he distinguished whether it was uh, going to be transcendental co-determination or an empirical co-determination. So I'll talk to, about this a little later. And there are some objectivist and activists which um, I think is a little bit strange, but I'm still sympathetic. Um, Kevin O'Regan and Daniel Hutto. So um, 
So unlike Noe, uh, Alvin Noe, Kevin O'Regan thinks the sensory motor theory actually explains consciousness, phenomenal experience, down to its core. So he's argued that you could actually program a robot using current technology to have all the features of a human being, including consciousness, intentionality, selfhood, emotions, social cognition. Um, and so he's criticized the original branch as being overly idealistic. Similarly, Daniel Hutto, who is the founder of radical inactivism, um, which I think is a little bit less radical than he might think, is, is actually ar argued for an updated version of the brain-mind identi identity thesis, which basically swaps out the brain for the organism in a dynamic sense. So he says, phenomenal experience is just a kind of organ organismic activity. As such, it can be given a physical description. And he means quite a complete physical description. And he also criticizes the original branch for being too idealistic. So um, for them, the real world is the objectivist, natural science world. Um, so experience is of this real, pre-structured, mind-independent world. And then, of course, pretty much everyone else is bracketed, and I don't blame them. This, this is weird. Um, so in this part, I want to talk about certain realist intuitions that actually lead to anti-objectivist conclusions. So I argue that the correlationism and inactivism, as, as in Husserl and Merleau-Ponty, um, actually stems from certain realist intuitions. So I think that there's, a, there's an equivocation in the term realism and what's real. Um, and I think this leads to a lot of uh, disagreement, and that's why I haven't used the term realism and idealism, but rather objectivism and anti-objectivism. So to clarify the problem, uh, I want to ask the question, how do different kinds of positions about the relationship to mind and world embody different kinds of intuitive realism? So to answer, let's first give some general presumptions about experience that I think it's fair to assume are widely shared by lay people. So um, I'll run through three of them here. The first is the reality presumption. So the world that I experience is that which is truly real. So when I look at the house, I'm looking at the house. It's right there. It's right in front of me. It's not something else. I'm looking at the house. I'm looking at all of you in the audience here. To the pre-structured presumption, so the world as I experience it is pre-structured and pre-given. So uh, colors, shapes, relations, meanings, everything, it all adheres fundamentally to the entities outside of myself, um, independently of something I'm doing or something that my community of subjects or organisms have done. So number three is the independence presumption. So common sense assumes that there's a world that exists independently uh, of any of all contributions to mind. And this is just a way, another way of phrasing the intuition that's at the core of objectivism. And it's different from the pre-structured presumption because it, it doesn't say this world of experience, the world as an experience. It could be any world. We just assume that there is a world that exists completely independently of us. So I have a little flowchart here. We can talk about a couple different positions and where they might fall. So uh, let's we'll start with the pre-structured presumption question. Does perceptual experience present us with a pre-structured world? I think someone like a naive realist possibly might say yes, um, that we open our eyes and we see a world that is pre-structured and pre-given in this way. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, our, our own sort of contributions. But I think, uh, thanks to Kant, most, uh, most philosophers have rejected this to some degree. Um, so that the world of experience is highly structured by cognition. So I think whether you're a representationalist or an activist or a phenomenologist or what have you, I think most people would agree with this, except for the more naive realist camp. Um, so the second question, does perceptual experience provide us presence in the real world? Um, and so if you remember, if you're a representationalist, you actually have to say no, because you're not living among 
the houses and the audiences. You're actually living in this, in your brain. You're, you, the, the world of experience is this internal correlate. So they'll have to say no, it gives you an inner world of representation. Um, but of course they're not idealists, so they don't want to think of themselves as idealists. So uh, you have the, the real world completely independently of experience as well. So they would say yes. But what about the inactivists? So they want to say yes, perception gives us the real world. I think they follow a lot of phenomenologists in taking this sort of realist presumption seriously. That uh, if you don't accept that the world as presented in experience is real, that this is it, this is the real world, then you get into a lot of philosophical troubles. Um, but then when it comes to the question of whether to, uh, whether there is an absolutely mind independent, so something that could never be viewed by uh, any conscious subject that has nothing to do with us, um, the interpretivists and the objectivists, they have different answers, but they both want to say yes, there is this objective mind independent world, and the correlationists want to say no, it's, it's kind of a meaningless question. Um, we can only think world through uh, the relation of the mind to the world. And just real br briefly, uh, maybe I won't go over that. Um, so, but why, why deny this mind-independent world in itself, though? It seems to a lot of people to be quite ridiculous. Um, and so I want to talk about the degrees of transcendentalism. So there's different uh, examples of co-determination or codependency. Um, so on the one hand, you could have something like ecological symbiosis, so you have flowers and bees or other pollinators. You can't understand these separately from each other. If you want to understand their morphological or evolutionary beings, you actually have to understand them in a relation to another. So that's a kind of empirical co-determination. On the other hand, you can have sensory motor conting uh, contingency, where perception must be understood with respect to both my movements and my sensory uh, receptivity. So there's a decomposable system there. I think this is a phenomenal or uh, conceptual co-determination or codependency. But really, what, what brings us home to the correlationist point would be this world-mind co-determination. So that we have no ground for thinking a world outside of the horizon of intentionality. Um, that the intentionality is sort of an infectious uh, structure that, that uh, doesn't allow us to escape and think a world in itself. Um, so if we try to context, uh, conceptualize the world in itself, we end up with a projection of the lived world. So we just maybe think of the world, but without colors because we know colors are mind-dependent or something like that. Or we end up with an empty abstraction, so the noumena or the, the thing in itself in Kant. So world and mind are conditions for possibility for one another. And I would call this transcendental co-determination. Um, and actually, these different kinds of co-determination are actually run together and conflated quite often in the inactivist texts, so especially in the embodied mind and tree of knowledge. Um, so part of what I'm trying to do is to be clear on the different dependency theses that they bring forward. So correlationists and inactivists, so they, they, they take this transcendental notion of world seriously. Interpretivists, they, they're not ignorant of it. They, they have a, a more moderate transcendentalism, though. So as we know, they, they, they think that mind is conditioned possibility. It's intertwined with the phenomenal world, of course. But, um, but you can put the transcendental notion aside in the empirical perspective or just insist that there's something outside of mind. Objectivism, of course, they don't buy transcendentalism at all. And interestingly enough, the objectivists and activists are the ones that are the least sympathetic or familiar with uh, phenomenology. Um, and which I think, uh, I think that they, in their negligence of the importance of experience, it's difficult to say that they're even really inactivists in a sense. They might be, should be called something else. Um, because, I mean, the original book was called The Embodied Mind, Cognitive Science and Human Experience. So I think if you neglect one side of those, 
then you yeah, you've kind of categorized yourself in a different uh, different uh, different camp there. So um, just a, a quick some thoughts to leave you with. So the correlationist and activism proposes ways of understanding the structure of consciousness, and they use dynamic systems theory and biology, evolutionary biology. Um, they even propose to explain Husserl's absolute time consciousness using dynamic systems theory. Um, so it, it's it's difficult to see how, on the first glance, how this isn't some sort of naturalistic reductionism. Um, and I think it answer the, that there's two sides of the puzzle. One is how we should understand transcendental phenomenology to accommodate scientific explanation. And the other is how to accommodate scientific, uh, to understand science to accommodate transcendental phenomenology. And I think that their solution is to give up claims of metaphysical priority on both sides. Um, so uh, this actually requires a sort of uh, a deep dive into non-foundationalism. Um, so they 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 look uh, they look again at the notion of a priori foundation, and I think that they really they move towards a sort of radical non-foundationalism, which which doesn't really accept these transcendental a priori conditions. And I think in doing so, they actually follow Merleau-Ponty um, in the structure of behavior as well. Uh, so he has a chapter called The Truth in Naturalism, um, but also in his later uh, Metaphysics and the Ontology of Flesh. And uh, Merleau-Ponty writes in The Phenomenology of Perception, the world is inseparable from the subject, from a subject which is nothing but a project of the world. And the subject is inseparable from the world, but from a world that the subject itself projects. Um, and I think that this allows Borella and Thompson to assert biology and phenomenology can stand in mutually enlightening explanatory relation and the explanatory relation is non-reductionist, but it runs quite deeply both ways. So obviously, if you're explaining absolute time consciousness using naturalistic concepts, you really need to allow quite leeway going both ways. And I would call this closing the circle. Closing the transcendental circle. All right, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, James. That's next talk. Um, question.